Welcome to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. We are back, and it's good to be back. I am hoping to get back to normal soon, but in the meantime, I am happy to have hosted Dr. Jesus Seade, Undersecretary for North America and Chief Negotiator for the USMCA. He's one of the candidates to succeed Roberto Acevedo as Director General to the WTO. Dr. Seade has been involved in trade and multilateral affairs practically all of his professional life and he's truly a global citizen. In our conversation, I tried to learn a bit more about him, as well as his vision on the multilateral trading system, the, w the WTO, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, the WTO staff, and ultimately, what is his motivation for becoming the WTO's Director General. If you enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by liking, subscribing, and or reviewing. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms and you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. Take it away. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed here belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. Good afternoon, uh, Dr. Seade. Thank you for joining me. Uh, how does it feel to be back in Geneva? Oh, it's a great feeling. Uh, it's, uh, I, I have been all over the place. I have yeah. lived in, as I say, north, south, east, west, uh, England, in France, in Brazil, in China, in Hong Kong, in the United States. But certainly the, the most special period in my life was in Geneva, involved in the WTO, creating the WTO as a negotiator, creating the WTO as a part of the team that rescued the negotiations that were failing, and I was appointed as Deputy Director General of the GATT then, and then as a Deputy Director General of the new WTO. So it was a wonderful period in my life, uh, professionally and also personally, because Geneva is a great place. Uh, I feel very much at home. I see people, many old faces. The place hasn't changed, and yeah. I hope it will never change. It's a very good place, and it's a very wonderful organization. I just hope it comes out from the hole where it finds itself. I, I'm interested in what you were saying about being a global citizen. Yeah. Uh, is that something that was uh, always the plan growing up? Oh, not at all, not at all. In fact, I come from a family of seven, seven siblings. Uh, I am the number six. And I think if I look at the behavior of each of the seven, I was by far the least likely to go that way. Because uh, since I was uh, 11 years old, I began to learn to hitchhike, to go to, go to villages and towns outside. I was completely in love of my countryside, my country, visiting you know traditional marketplaces, Uh, uh, very much attached to the land, attached to the culture, attached to my country. I never thought of this. So it has, certainly has been a loss, that aspect. But uh, it just happened that way. I went to do my... Uh, my uh, I was an engineer. Yeah. I did a master's in economics in Mexico, uh, thinking of uh, giving uh, a more social dimension to my engineering, okay. to work as an engineer, but uh, public sector. But the first class that I took in economics, I loved it. I said, this is my stuff. So I soon after went to England, to Oxford, to do a PhD. And uh, I became very much uh, 
uh, lead to the subject, uh, very successful for 10, 12 years in England as a professor. And then uh, uh, my field was a very popular field for application. I was primarily an expert on uh, on uh, fiscal policies, taxation okay. and so on. So I was invited by the World Bank uh, to be a consultant. Then I was invited by the World Bank for a senior, very senior uh, position for my age. As in the chief economist. Uh, initially a senior economist, okay. which was very, very senior. And then I was promoted twice in two years. And so I became a chief economist for Latin America. So, so at uh, what point do you feel that you got this uh, interest for international affairs? Um, no, it was then. It was pretty much the first time that I went as a consultant to, uh, to Congo, the Democratic Republic the of Bank. Congo. A consultant for the World Bank. Yeah. I, I was still a professor, a senior professor, but a young man uh, in the UK. I went as a consultant to the country then called Zaire, which is the Democratic Republic of Congo, and I immediately fell in love with the, with the plight of Africa, with the things that can be done for Africa, with the things that I was doing then, with the work that I was doing shoulder to shoulder, with a very competent, committed uh, staff in the different ministries and the, with the ministers. I was moving at all levels since then. I said, ah, oh, this is really making better use of my life. So that really, so I soon after accepted a position in the World Bank to continue doing that. So I gave up my very successful starting career as an academic. And it was then that I began to go in this direction. Uh, going back to your, your start in the, in the trade world, Mexico is a key player in the multilateral trading system and an advocate and a, and a pioneer in modern trade negotiations. How did you get your start in In this. Well, I was uh, working the way I tell you. Uh, I was with the World Bank. Uh, I was preparing my return to England or my acceptance of an academic position at Boston University, a senior position, when the phone rang and there was a new government in Mexico and the new government was full of energy looking for uh, you know, commercial further opening. The opening of the Mexican economy had just started uh, two years earlier, uh, 1986. And so uh, the new government was uh, full of uh, energy to open up and they wanted to negotiate with everybody in the world and beyond. Yeah. And, uh, and on the first day of the new government, I was called to be offered the position of ambassador in Geneva to negotiate the Uruguay round of uh, trade negotiations, trade negotiations that in the end led to the creation of WTO. No, there was no talk of WTO, but it was a major trade negotiation. And, uh, and I was invited to do that. Why did they invite me? Well, I, I guess it was because I had been a very successful economist. My previous 10 years as an academic, I, I, um, I was very well known in Mexico. I received lots of offers. Uh, People are very flattering of uh, my time then as an economist. And uh, so they invited me because I was a, a well-known economist. And uh, in addition to the fact that I knew the world, yes. uh, I had lived in Europe and I had been a consultant here and there. I knew the languages. So they thought, oh, this is a good ambassador. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I went into that. I, and now that you are uh, a candidate for the position of director general, Actually, when the when this first came up that there was going to be a vacancy, I, the first thought that came to my mind was, uh, 
oh my God, that's a pretty difficult job. And I thought about the words that Kennedy said when they, sent, they were planning to send a man to the moon, that he said, we're going to do it, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Does this ring true to you? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. No, I do it because I feel very, very uh, committed with the WTO that I helped create. I was negotiator. It probably was one of the most involved developing country teams involved in every aspect of the negotiation. There's almost no page in the agreements that doesn't have the you know a mark from Mexico, a position and so on. So very involved in the, in, in, in the negotiations. Then as I mentioned, the negotiations were collapsing, collapsing. It was three and a half years of absolute failure, not around if you want. And, uh, and uh, we, the ambassadors, were about to declare it failed, and we decided to give it the final go by changing the management. So we asked the director general of the GATT, who was a very good man, uh, sorry, we want to try uh, to see if this helps. So we changed the, the management, and I was invited by the consensus of uh, the other countries to be the only deputy director general that was elected in an open contest because the two others were appointed by the United States and by India by tradition. There were three deputy directors. There were two, two and we agreed to create a third one. Okay. A third one for a developing country and a third one to uh, head and lead the more substantive uh, dimension. The research, publications, relations with countries, relations with IMF and World Bank. So all the more kind of analytical and the uh, policy complex uh, dimensions. That was the, the duty. So uh, the only one that was uh, open contest, I was uh, flattered by uh, honor to be invited. Uh, so I was very involved as a negotiator for my country. I was part of the team that led this exercise to success from failure, from abject failure. And then I was deputy head of the new energetic organization. It was a beautiful time. Then I come 20 years later from the time I left, uh, or 18, 19 years later, and uh, I, we have a WTO that is really in a deep trouble, in a deep hole, with no substantive negotiations for all that time, except for a couple of important but narrow achievements. Uh, the dispute settlement system, that was the, 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 the jewel in the crown, uh, in total disarray, the world in a, in a very, very confused situation. Uh, our two, for my country, our two leading trading partners uh, in complete uh, animosity with each other. Uh, so it was felt that uh, this is a worthy thing to try. And for me, I have been in different organizations. I have been in, I, I am the only person that has worked in a senior position in the three top economic organizations. World Bank, IMF, WTO. So I really felt it's something that I can do, something that I have to do. Actually, yeah, you touched on a lot of topics that I want to discuss. Uh, but going back, talking about the transformative period that uh, you, you were involved with, uh, going from the GATT to the WTO, were there any lessons that you learned at that time that may be useful during the transformative period that we're going now? Well, I mean, uh, it's, I, don't, I don't know how to convey that. It's a question of leadership, maybe. But, uh, but uh, you do need a lot of good faith. 
because you're going to really ask every country to make a big leap forward. Not exactly a sacrifice, but it requires daring and it requires vision on the part of everybody. And, uh, and the key to that then was a, a certain complicity we had among the negotiators. I might be totally against you on the substance of something, but I knew that I could count on you as a representative for some of the uh, adversary country in terms of positions, but I could count on you because we were all, all committed with success. There was a commitment with success. There was a connivance, a connivance, a complicity to work together. Now there's none of that. Now it's complete mistrust and distance. So we have to, try to, to, to create this sense of trust. And that's something that I hope to try to inject. Why, how do you do it? Well, combination of vision, bring a vision, bring leadership, bring an optimism, and begin to create that optimism by having important achievements. Like you are stranded, you're standing, how do you get to, to run? Well, you take a first step, and then a faster second step, yeah. and then a faster third step, and then you're running. So we have to take a solid first step and then second. And that, what, what do I mean? To seek to accelerate, to work hard with members, to accelerate the negotiations on the way, the fisheries have been going on for 15 years. We still continue to have grandstanding by some ministers. Let's cut it short. Let's achieve success within, uh, you know, the rest of the uh, the, my, the first hundred years of the new Director General Fisheries, and then quickly translate that into a more focused uh, progress, fo focused effort to progress and to move forward in the other three major negotiations on the way. The three. Uh, uh, joint initiatives, uh, you know, in uh, uh, I will not name the sectors at the same time, <laughs> but uh, maybe you, you, can, you can add it, uh, which uh, we have to make sure they are completed by the ministerial next year, or at worst, uh, make a really solid progress so as to finish in real time later and arrive at that ministerial with uh, an agree agreed agenda for new negotiations. So that is the the, the path of negotiation that moves with one step, then two, then five. Okay? On the side, the all-important dispute settlement system, the appellate, appellate body, um, it's hugely important, huge amount of animosity, again, this one uh, across all oceans in the world, particularly across the Atlantic, but also across the, the Pacific. Everybody's uh, very interested in this. But I examine it, I talk to, to experts, I talk, talk to country representatives, and I really think it's something that will be difficult to solve, but has no reason to take long to solve. So I very much have uh, my own ideas on how to approach it, that I look forward to putting to the Europeans and to the Americans, which are the, the, the two main uh, actors on this, as well as to the Chinese and to the Brazilians and to everybody else. And I believe that uh, with, uh, with enough concentration, this is something we can solve in real time, first few months. So if you make progress on negotiations and you solve the appellate body question in the first few months, three months or so, or whatever, then you are really uh, changing the atmosphere. And that's what I want to inject, a change in the atmosphere. Uh, related to this, there's a, a lot of studies that show that uh, NAFTA negotiation at the time, when the WTO was also being created, they had like kind of a symbiotic relationship, NAFTA and the WTO, and the successes of both pushed each other forward. Yeah, yeah. 
Do you think you having played a key role in the negotiation of the USMCA, do you think that can somehow, do you see some parallels between that as, as it happened before? Well, there are some specific things that we managed in that uh, huge agreement that could be relevant. I, I will have to consult and see if there's interest. For example, uh, the main political complaint about uh, trade in pretty much every country in the world has been the fact that, uh, well, trade uh, with technology as advanced as it is often means uh, exporting across the world. So your, your preferred supplier of this or that could be in Korea or could be in Chile or could be across the world. And that tends to be easier for big firms than small firms. So we have had in the last 20 years a concentration of market share in every sector pretty much. Uh, towards big firms and so the complaint that we have heard in my country and in South America and in North America and in Europe and in Hong Kong and everywhere has been that small and medium enterprises have uh, not benefited as much. Uh, well, in the, in the USMCA we do have a, a chapter that I, I think is very much the perfect example of a win-win agreement. I don't see where anybody of the three countries in North America made a concession to arrive at that. It's a win-win. Uh, it's a chapter uh, creating space for uh, supporting better uh, small and medium, medium enterprises. So maybe that can be considered here. But I would not think of the, the, the agreement as such being relevant in terms of its contents. What is relevant is the fact that uh, the United States has a tremendous animosity towards the WTO. This animosity, this mistrust, is certainly not the preserve of the present government. It was very much, uh, very noticeable with the previous government, with uh, President Obama. It is very much part of the discourse of the of the view of uh, of. Uh, Candidate uh, Biden, if he were to win, certainly will continue to with, with President uh, uh, Trump if he wins, if he continues. I think this uh, mistrust of WTO, this uh, discomfort with many aspects of WTO, is a consensual, shared vision of the United States, government and public, right and left. Everybody sees this this way. So we have to win them over. We have to be able to negotiate with them. And, uh, and that's certainly something that I, that I very much have. Uh, I negotiated a hugely difficult uh, agreement with them, yeah. very difficult, the uh, US, USMCA. Uh, the United States for 26 years have not, has not wanted to have a dispute settlement uh, effective and strong, as we in the end created it. And we created it by persuasion and by collaboration with different uh, agents, talking to trade unions, talking to the private sector, talking to, to uh, all political actors. So I think that this capacity to, uh, to work with the United States and to work with them for mutual benefit and to get results and to get them involved is something that I hope to bring. I, I'm inter I, I mean, I've been working in trade for like 10 years, not as long as you, you have. But in my whole time that I've been working in trade, I've always heard that there's a crisis in the WTO. But somehow now it, it seems different. Now it seems like for real. Uh, I was, uh, and this was even before COVID-19. I think COVID-19 exacerbated yeah. some of the crisis that was there. 
Uh, I wanted to ask you about your view. In pop culture, there's this belief that you create a, there's a big enemy that makes the heroes join together to fight the big enemy. I thought that this would, that climate change would be what makes us work together, but sadly it wasn't. Could COVID-19 be the reason that makes us go together and well, fight? I think that's a nice idea. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good idea. It's a profound reading because COVID-19 is really uh, bringing uh, in uh, an amount of uh, chaos in trade and not only in trade, in production. In production, it's only do also domestic. It's not only the trade side. Every country has closed down and stopped down. Uh, Uh, almost never seen before. So coming out of it will really benefit hugely from cooperation. We need each other. We need to, to, to work together. It's certainly one area that I, that, I, that I would dedicate a lot of my effort and my time to try to maximize the role of WTO in helping countries come out of COVID uh, in, the, in the best possible way to maximize the dynamics in coming out, to maximize the positive effect on yourself and on the other countries of any measure that you take to liberalize. Because in the absence of any coordination, it'll be very difficult. It'll be very difficult. It'll be like uh, moving uh, from central planning to a free market without any help. Yeah. Imagine just that you have a completely com deeply communist economy Uh, if you just say, okay, now it's market economy, it'll be a very messy affair for several years because supply and demand don't meet and you want to produce something but there's nobody to buy to you. Well, that's exactly what we will find ourselves in the situa situation under COVID. It's not communism, but it's certainly negation of trade. We have said to our producers, you should not produce this and you cannot export that and you cannot import that. So releasing those constraints to go to free market will be a very disorderly affair unless you bring in the maximum amount of cross-fertilization, exchange of information, ability to consult that we can bring. And who can do that? Well, one country can do it bilateral with another. But uh, in general, every country trades with everybody else. Nobody can do it as well as the WTO can do it in close collaboration with all the national authorities. That's an important item on the agenda for me. That's exactly the, the two large options that I see. Either we go to global cooperation or we retreat to nationalism, which right now we're like in that uh, dichotomy, but it's not clear where we are going to go towards yet. Um, well, I hope it'll be uh, going back to uh, to open economy by and large, by and large, I said, uh, not business as usual, but open economy by and large, because the benefits of trade the last uh, 75, 70 years have been fantastic for pretty much every region of the world. The hundreds of millions of people that have come out of extreme poverty, thanks to trade, uh, towards a better standard of, of, of living, cannot be denied. At the same time, it is true that even beyond, before COVID, uh, as I mentioned before, the benefits of trade have not been equally shared among populations. There have been areas of uh, pockets of losers, in particular industries, the Rust Belt in the United States, or traditional culture in, 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 in my country, in many countries. Uh, we need uh, governments that will be more active 
in uh, making sure the benefits are widely shared, and that's something that is very much on the political agenda of many countries. But at the same time, it may be appropriate to, to take certain measures to uh, help countries, for example, have a, a minimum amount of security that they can feed themselves, for example. But that can easily be exaggerated in a self-defeating way. If you think that, uh, that uh, you learned in the last uh, decade, in particular with COVID, that depending on a, hum on a huge value chain that makes one country be the main supplier of something that you need, and that uh, when that country is in crisis or in trouble, you suffer. If the reading from that is that you better internalize that value chain, onshoring that production, as they say, or near-shoring that production to neighboring countries, well, that negates the benefits of trade. And what happens if tomorrow you have a crisis? You have a huge uh, a tsunami or whatever it is. It doesn't really help. So maybe what countries need to do is to learn that in trade, there has to be a little bit, a modicum of uh, what finance people know very well, which is that putting all your eggs in one basket, even if it, that basket is the, the most efficient, which means in finance, uh, higher gains uh, uh, per year, you know, better prospects, any trade uh, means uh, the, the, the cheapest source of uh, something in, in the appropriate quality. Uh, what you have learned in finance is that putting all your baskets in one, all your eggs in one basket, because it is the most attractive basket, uh, is a bad idea. You want to diversify it somewhat. Maybe in trade there is a little bit of the same. We don't have the instruments to do that. Countries have to learn how to do it, but certainly not impeding open trade, certainly not uh, rever reverting to uh, anything close to, to closing down the economy, so self-sufficiency. I really think that uh, we have to be careful. There, can, there have been some tweaking, some controls on globalization, but on rolling globalization would be uh, denying ourselves the benefits of globalization, the benefits of uh, having the, 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 the cheapest production feed our peoples uh, in the best possible way, at the best value for money uh, way. Um, you, you've said that you worked at, uh, at uh, three organizations that uh, international organizations that largely have to do with the international economic order, yeah. the IMF, uh, the World Bank and the WTO. When the WTO was being created, I think that the idea was to have like this, the same status as the IMF and the World Bank. And I think largely uh, the, that was a success. But it seems that we're going now in the opposite direction. Is this uh, your reason? Well, the, the WTO is weakened because we have not been able to do what the WTO is supposed to do, which is to negotiate and which is to have a, a solid and functioning uh, dispute settlement system. These are the two main legs. There's also transparency, which is also important, but I mean the two fundamental legs are to move on negotiations, to, to reflect the needs as they come, and, uh, and to have a, a reliable, solid, fair, balanced uh, dispute settlement system. Both have been denied. So, of course, the institution is uh, weaker, but by putting those two right and begin to move forward again, it's a very, very important institution. It's not a match for the World Bank in terms of personnel. It has uh, uh, one in 20, roughly, if not less, fewer staff 
and the World Bank. World Bank is a gigantic institution. The IMF is in between those two. But that's not a way to measure the importance of an organization. The importance of an organization is what it means for the policies of uh, member countries and for the support to member countries. In that respect, it's certainly one of the uh, three uh, top organizations alongside those, uh, which is now weakened. We have to repair that. Um, in the tech world, there's always a talk about disruption and how to disrupt the current models of doing business. Uh, I think that has uh, not really translated to the diplomatic trade world because it's a bit more conservative, but we're faced with external forces that are disrupting the, the way we do normal business. What, how would you approach this uh, disruption that not necessarily is coming from the inside, but more from the external? Well, it may be that uh, one reason is that the world keeps changing faster and faster, but our DNA I am not a biologist, but uh, I suppose our DNA is not changing that fast. Maybe it may not be changing at all. Maybe I am a, exactly the same kind of constitution as some equivalent person 50 years ago. But the world is changing faster and faster. So we have a limited ability to absorb what is happening. You know, the pace at which, since WTO was created, the pace at which what we trade has changed, what we trade, new products, Electronic trade doesn't exist, you know that? It doesn't exist. And of course, cell phones don't exist. If you think in terms of what was written in WTO, <laughs> okay? So what, it, what is traded has changed, changed so much. And how it is traded, how it is delivered, how means not only different means, that you have electronic trade, for example, but also that even shipping or plane transportation is far cheaper, so you can send things, as I said, from Korea to Chile without winking, uh, which you couldn't do before. And that creates uh, new, new challenges, enormous challenges. Now the Chileans have to worry about the Koreans taking off their market and vice versa. So what is traded, how it is traded, the size of new traders, you know, China, the giant, uh, was not even part of the last negotiations. And uh, uh, so all these things represent gigantic challenges for the intimately essential issues of WTO in a way that does not have a counterpart in the business of the World Bank or the IMF. For them, the issues that they have to do change, change, but not that much. For example, 25 years ago, uh, the world was relying a lot less on equity than now. There was a lot less country-to-country -country lending. So there have been changes in the business of the IMF, but nothing near the changes we have had in the business, the fundamental issue that the WTO refers to. And if things change so fast, well, we may be uh, challenged to adjust, to keep up with those changes. And we have not been keeping up with those changes. So that is the problem. I think it is the enemy's progress. I, I say that tongue-in-cheek. Progress is great, but, uh, but, uh, but we have to move faster to be able to cope with that progress, to harness it, and to make sure that it doesn't make us uh, begin to hate each other or begin to fail to be able to cooperate with each other or to preserve the institutions that we created before. So that is, I, I think that is one source of the challenge. 
it's a question you just threw at me and not re <laughs> reflected on that enough. But I think this question of, of pace of, and I spoke of the change in the last 25 years, but it has not been uni uniform in each five year period. The change in the last five years is probably as much as in the previous 20. Yeah. So you can imagine what will be the next three years. So uh, we really have to develop uh, better means to, to cope with the world that we are creating. Uh, I'm curious about which, which increases the need for a WTO, despite the failures in the past. I'm curious about uh, the way that you approach, for example, when you are approaching right now the selection process. Uh, there was a Mexican candidate that was really close in the last uh, election, Dr. Erminio Blanco. Yeah. Did you have any conversation with him about maybe what were the what the lessons that could have been learned for the process? And tied to this, in case you were elected uh, DG, would you have a similar conversation with Acevedo just to see what worked, what didn't work? Oh, I certainly, I certainly have met a couple of times with Acevedo uh, in the last uh, several years, just as I have met with the top people in the World Bank, in the IMF, in the OECD. Uh, I said that we'll, we'll, we'll talk to him. He's a, a very competent man. He's a delightful person. And uh, I certainly hope to, to benefit from his views and his guidance. I have spoken with, uh, with uh, er Erminio Blanco uh, in many directions on many issues. Uh, for the campaign, not very much. I mean, uh, I, I have been uh, doing this basically, talking to the other countries and, and just presenting my honest analysis and views. But, uh, but in equipping myself for the new job, I certainly will uh, look forward to very openly uh, learn from uh, all kinds of parties, yeah. Um, I'm curious about, I think you mentioned that you were involved with HR, with management of personnel. Yeah. It seems that the WTO, the morale of the staff is not really high at the moment. And I'm basing this on anecdotal evidence, not that I have seen any specific surveys or anything. But I think that this is a, an area where the DG can have an immediate and direct uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. impact. What What are your views on this? What kind of, how would you approach this? Well, uh, well first you're right. I mean, when I was Deputy Director General here, my substantive business was, I think, first, first of all, uh, relations with capitals and development issues generally. Uh, relations with IMF, World Bank, United Nations, but also the economic dimension, trade reports, analysis, training, technical assistance, all these, all these issues. Nevertheless, during my time as uh, Deputy Director General of the GATT and then of the WTO, I was uh, always in charge of, uh, ad, uh, for most of the time I was in charge of the administration division that produces documents and all those things, and particularly human resources. I was in charge of human resources. For what reason? I don't know, but it <laughs> happened. And I was very interested and I worked very closely with the then director of human resources. Then I went to the IMF, which is a far bigger institution. I was working in the in, in uh, one of the two largest departments, which is uh, uh, more than twice the size of the WTO in terms of staff. And there, my business was, again, countries in crisis, uh, Turkey, Brazil, African countries, uh, debt forgiveness. That was the substance of my work. But I was the head of all personal issues. It was I 
who decided even on matters of policy and certainly application of the policy appointments or discontinuation of contracts or promotions. I was in charge of all that. And the IMF has a, a very interesting mechanism uh, to bring together the heads of, uh, of uh, uh, human resources issues across the IMF, but not all of them. There are 30 departments, but five people, not 30, five people develop the policy around the IMF, and I was one of the five during my stage. So I was very much in charge of HR issues in my very large department, and also participating in the development of policies for the IMF as a whole. And then I went to my university in Hong Kong. Uh, I was the vice president, one vice president. The president was mainly fundraising. So I was very much in charge of the university. And the university had a really bad system of personnel policies. Uh, not one academic had lost his job ever since the university was created in the 1960s. Never. So, of course, competent people, good, but you have to have standards and so on. I introduced uh, more movement, more rigor. Uh, I know for a fact that the personnel in the WTO are very high quality, but there certainly will be things that one can do with enough uh, involvement and enough experience. For example, it is my impression that perhaps the WTO has, uh, despite having a a very motivated and high-quality staff, it probably has not deployed its staff in the best possible way. It may be that uh, you have a little too many captains for the number of soldiers that they have under their command. It may be that uh, without sacking anybody, none of that, but through attrition, through changes as they come, it may be that you want to flatten it a bit more, to have more people uh, experts who are the ones that really interact with delegations. By doing that, you will have a much better ability to serve delegations, to support uh, our members. You maybe I have to check that, I have to talk to the staff, I have to, to talk to the member countries, but my impression is that, that there may be an opportunity to improve the efficiency of the product we deliver for the amount of money available uh, by moving in this direction. Uh, and secondly, of course, staff uh, are somewhat demoralized because the WTO is in a sad state, because you're not negotiating and so on. I, I hope to bring uh, a more optimistic, uh, dynamic, forward-looking leadership, not only vis-a-vis -vis the members, but vis-a-vis -vis the staff. And I believe I have every opportunity to do that, because I believe that my candidature has been very well received among staff. That's what I hear, that's what I hear directly from lots of people that I see. Welcome home, welcome back, everybody says, and I feel very much I look forward to working with them and raising their spirits again uh, for a new beginning. Um, just one uh, thing before you go, because I know you're quite busy. Uh, I wanted to hear your thoughts on a lot of the work in the WTO before negotiations and the work of the committee and everything used to happen behind closed doors. Yeah. There was little that was oh. known in the general public. Perhaps there was also less interest back then, but there seems that there's a trend to make everything more uh, transparent and public and sometimes even in, in real time. Like the fact that uh, there was a press conference immediately after, I think that has never been done uh, in the past. Is this a trend that uh, you see going forward and something that you would encourage? Uh, 
Uh, well, there are two aspects here. Uh, transparency of the WTO vis-a-vis -vis the world has to increase, has to continue to develop. I am all in favor of that, transparency vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the world. So I certainly uh, hope to, one of the areas that I want to move are issues of transparency by member countries, transparency uh, uh, and notification of measures that they take. I already spoke about uh, the important role the WTO has to play on coming out of the, of the pandemic. And uh, a major ingredient there will be notification, transparency of what are the plans in this country, that country, vis-a-vis -vis this sector, that sector. So in general, notification, transparency, uh, I am very much in favor. There's also the question of uh, transparency, uh, transparency as a, as a matter for negotiation. And I think that's something that uh, members have to decide, but uh, I am very much in favor of, uh, again, moving forward on this, uh, more open policies, more, again, notification as a matter of policy. Um, uh, I would say I would leave it at, at that. I mean, I could, I could uh, expand more, but uh, certainly uh, th these are issues that I think uh, are very important. We are living in an age where common citizens are more and more involved with uh, what institutions do and how their money is used. So I think that we have to be accountable and uh, I'm all in favor of, uh, of uh, being more, more open on, uh, on these issues. Uh, well, I want to thank you very much for your time. Uh, it was uh, really great talking to you and uh, thank you. Thank you very much. So as not to make noise, we switched off the aircon, so we are all feeling a bit hot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed it, please let us know by liking, subscribing, and or reviewing. A small act from you that means the world to me. I have great plans for this season, so stay tuned. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do it by email at rr at rodolforivasproject.com or at RivasRod on Twitter, at Rodolfo Rivas Project on Instagram, or through our page on LinkedIn. Catch us next time. <laughs>